Randy and I uh, lived in Wisconsin for about three years, 2012, 2015. And if you've ever been in Wisconsin, they love the Packers. Um, I mean, they, the church is just stacked with Packers gear and cheese heads and all the rest of it. Um, and while we were there, we loved the Packers. I, love, I loved Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers while he was there. And then he abandoned us um, and went to the Jets and then hurt himself. So that's on him. Um, but when we were there, we, we got a chance to go to Lambeau Field, the stadium, and uh, got to do the tour. And it was really cool. Um, and we were learning the history of, of the Packers and all the rest of it. And uh, we were walking through the tunnel, and we got to go out actually on the field. And the, the, you know, it was like, hey, you can't step on the grass. And he was like, you can't step on the grass. You can't, you can't lick the grass. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you can't, you can't lick the grass. And I was like, well, now I'm going to lick it. I wasn't going to lick it, but now I'm definitely going to lick the grass. Um, and so Rainy and I snuck off, and we licked the grass. And uh, it tasted normal. It's just, I don't, know why you, I don't know why you said it, but I wouldn't have done it if you wouldn't have said it. But we learned the history. We did some weird stuff there. That was really fun. But one of the things that I learned that I thought was really cool was I learned about Vince Lombardi. I, didn't, I don't know a ton about Vince Lombardi, um, but the, he was a coach and maybe one of the greatest coaches of all time. Uh, in the NFL, and he coached the Packers for a number of years, basically throughout the 60s. Um, but one of the things that they was, were telling us about him, and like now the Super Bowl is the Lombardi Trophy. Like you get the Lombardi Trophy based on you know, this man and his legacy. Um, but he's, he's famous for doing this thing where he was coaching the Packers, um, and they were on the way to win the NFL championship and then got stopped like right in the red zone right before they scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter and they blew this lead and they went from like winning the national championship to losing it just by a little bit and it was a real tragedy for them and they were very sad. And so the next season, they meet in the locker room and it's July of 1961 and they're expecting to have this space where it's like, okay, we're going to, we, we almost won the championship last year and so let's pick up where we left off. Let's, let's, uh, what's, what's something that we can do to upgrade our defense? What's something we can do to upgrade our offense? What's something we can do to upgrade and learn new tactics and new ways to tackle and new ways to just get an edge up on the teams this year so that we can just elevate where we were last year and just pick up from there? And instead of doing that, and this is what he's famous for, Vince Lombardi gets the team together, all 38 players into the thing, gets them their, you know, their books and all the rest of it. And basically, he just stands up. He's like, okay. He takes a football and he holds it up and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And he just starts from the beginning. And so from there, what he does, he, he, it says that he grabbed their playbooks, handed it to him, and they went not to page 111 or whatever. They went back to page one. And it was like, let's just start at the beginning. They started learning how to block again, this, the, the fundamental way, how to tackle, how to throw, how to catch, how to do special teams. And it felt very elementary to them. It's like, how is this going to benefit us in any way? But he just took this tactic of going, like, let's just go back to what we do and why we do it. And then from there, they ended up winning the national championship that year. And then over the next seven years, they won five national championships. And a lot of it is attributed to not because he gave them new ways to elevate their game, but because he just kept going back to, like, look, this is what we do, and this is why we do it. Every time we think that it's more complicated than this, we get in our own heads and we mess up and we fumble the ball on the one-yard line. Like, let's not do that. Let's just remember, this is a football and it needs to go into that space. Like that, it's that simple the entire time. 
And so for us, as I was thinking about that and thinking about our church, I don't want to win any championships. We're not trying to set records here at this church. There's nothing like that. We don't want to be in magazines as like the fastest growing church. Well, I don't care. Anything like that. But I do think that there's a space where church in the South and church as a whole can become so complicated. And so like, what do we, we, we forget what we even do here. And it's like, if you're going to be a successful church, a lot of people are like, well, if you're going to be a, you know, a church nowadays in our culture, like they, what they'd say is like, you got to be a house church or you, no, 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 it's not a house church. You need to be, the model needs to be multi-site church, or you need to have a, a satellite church, or you need to have a missional church, a charismatic church, a mega church. No, it's not mega church. You need to do this. You need to do that. Like all these different things. And all these people and all these people are writing about this stuff and people are going, well, I go to this type of church. I go to an intellectual church. I go to a culturally cross-cultural church or a multicultural church and all these different things. And it becomes so complicated. And I've heard people um, just over 17 years of ministry, people say like, hey, if you're going to be successful, you need to have a building to be a church. And other people are like, no, I vehemently disagree. You do not need to have a building. You need to rent and bless the culture with your rent and partner with schools and stuff like that, which is what we do. Although we're not saying like, it's the end-all, be-all model. Uh, Some people say, like, you need to have a food pantry so that you're having, like, the homeless come in and people from the city coming in, which I think is a cool thing. But then other people say, no, you don't need to do that because you just need to take your money and you need to partner with other organizations in the city in order to bless the city. And then all of a sudden, that's that's the way that you'll grow your church. Other people say, if you're going to have a successful church, you need to sing the newer songs. And they say, no, 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 we need to bring the older songs back. And then some people say, you need to have one service. And some people say, no, you need to have two services, one for the younger generation and one for the older generation. And just on and on and on and on. Like, how do we do church in a successful way? And I think in the midst of all of these different things that people can say of like, here's what the church is supposed to be. I think we can just forget that like, what do we actually do here? Why are we actually here? What is this all for? Who is it all for? Why did it even begin? Is it really live stream that's going to save the church in the 21st century? Is that really it? Or is there something else? And I think it can become so complicated. We just forget what we are, who we are, and why we do what we do. And so for the next 12 weeks, We want to do a series uh, titled Here for Him, and basically just looking at the idea, the fact that everything that we do here is for him, for Jesus. It's not for me, it's not for you, it's everything that we do here is is because of him, and it is for him, it's about him. And so what we're going to talk about over the next 12 weeks is why we worship, why we preach, what we preach, why we gather, why we take communion, why we baptize, why we give money to the church, uh, why we serve the church your role in the church as the church, and then my role as the pastor and the leadership's role as the leaders of the church. We just want to look at all of these different things, not to just give you information transfer, but just so that we have this space where it's like, this is a football. This is a church. This is what this is. This is how it began, and this is why we exist, and this is what we do. In hopes that we'll, we'll wind up in the space where there's be this renewed vision of like, oh, okay, All the different things, it's not like I just go to church on Sunday in the South because my parents went, and then their parents before them, and then their parents before them, and it's just this cultural thing that we do on a Sunday. But like, oh, there's this space here where this thing was created long ago that actually has value to us, and there's something here for us. And so that's what we want to do over the next 12 weeks, right up until Easter, um, to realize more and more, like, here's why we do what we do, and get back to the fundamentals of some of those things. And so I wanted to begin with this passage today. Because this passage is the first time that Jesus ever talks about the church. It's the first usage of the word. Jesus says the ecclesia, the church, this gathering of people. And it's the first time he ever says anything about it. And so what I want to do today 
is look at three things we learn about the church from what Jesus says about it. Because to me, if, if it's his thing, and it's about him and for him and all the rest of it, and the, the things that he says about it, I want us to learn from him basically what it is. First one is that we learn that uh, Jesus says that it's his church, it's not our church. It's his church, not our church. Um, I don't know about you, but I've never walked into somebody's house when they were like making me dinner and then when we sat down at the dining room table, I was like, actually, I don't like the dining room table here. I'm going to move this and just snagged it and moved it. Like, I've never had, you've had me over to your house and just started rearranging your furniture. Like, oh, you put your TV there. That's stupid. And then just grab it and like, you would never do that. Um, that's not what you do. You don't do that in somebody else's house. Like, your preference for where things go and what things go like, like, it's not up to you. Your preference doesn't matter as much because... You're not in your own house. It's their house. And I think that similar things uh, are involved in the life of the church. The church, realistically, is not ours. It's his, so our preferences don't matter as much as what he says about the church and how the church is supposed to function. We actually had this happen at uh, the last house we were at. Uh, we had this builder who we love. We love him. And we told him, like, hey, uh, he's going to sand down all of our floors and then paint and or stain and do all this stuff and like we want it to look like this. this is what we want it to look like and he's like great got it paid him the money got him the stuff so he can go get it literally got him all the supplies and then we go to the beach which is a terrible idea um and so we go to the beach and he's like he's doing it we when we come back it's all done and i walk in and it is completely different than everything he took our stuff back and was like i thought this looked better and he just did the entire wood floor that could not be undone he, had, he did the entire wood floor in a different color and a different stain with a different, we wanted matte finish, and he had this shiny thing. It was hideous. And he was like, doesn't it look better? And I was like, bro, no, this is awful. I hate this. And it was thousands of dollars and all this stuff. And we, so, so we just sold that house and gave it to somebody else and made it somebody else's problem. <laughs> That's actually true. We did sell the house. <laughs> um, but it was like, this isn't yours. Like you don't get to, as the builder or as the worker, like, thank you for working in this. I'm so thankful you did the work. But you don't get to make preferential decisions about a house that isn't yours. And I think in the same way, our preferences can't be the thing. Even though we, we work in it, we tithe to it, we do all this stuff, like our preferences still, it's not ours. He says, it is my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Not your church, not your preferential church. I will build my thing. What I want to build, the way I want to do it, I will do it this way. And not even the way I want to do it, because pastors can get in there too and be like, oh, well, the church I, I want is this. And it's like it can't function that way because he won't build that church. He only builds his church. Everything in the church is about him. The church is for us, and it's for our good. But at the end of the day, it is about him and we can't make it about us because it's about him. He, like, we give our money to it, but like, he actually bought it. Like, he bought it with his blood. It's because it's his because of that. He chose to purchase it. And I think when we forget that, that it's, that it's his church and not ours, our preferences for what we would like the church to look like become reasons we either attend the church, like I'm, I attend this church not because Jesus is building his church, because I attend this church because it matches my preferences. I attend, or, or what, what ends up happening is, that church stops meeting my preferences, and so I end up either attending the church that meets my preferences, or I leave the church that won't meet my preferences. And so it looks like, well, they didn't have this, so I left. They didn't do this in the church, and so I left. The preference becomes the end all, be all. But when we remember that the church is Jesus' church, 
It's fine to have preferences, but our preferences don't become reasons that we leave. They actually become reasons that we choose to stay. And so it's like, hey, actually, I, this, this thing that I feel that I think should happen isn't a reason I should go find it somewhere else. It's something I should actually stay and build there. And you see this in Acts 6. There's this space in the early church. I mean, the first couple of days, it's like the church is growing and all these great things are happening. And then there's a dispute that rises up in the church, which is not shocking. It's been like Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes and does this amazing stuff, and then they're fighting among one another because that's what the church does best. We just argue with one another really well. But this is what happens among them. They, they start arguing. It says that in those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because the widows, uh, their widows, excuse me, their widows were being overlooked. It's very important. Their widows, the Greek uh, Jews' widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered together the disciples and said, it would not be right to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed for them, laid hands on them, and so the word of God spread. And you can miss out what happens here because the, the, the Greek-speaking or the, the, the Greek um, Hellenistic Jews are the ones complaining. And then the seven people who are chosen are the Hellenistic Jews. Set the seven people are all Hellenistic Jews in this particular space. And so the point was, it wasn't like, hey, you have a problem, like deal with your own problem. It wasn't that. It was like, you've noticed something in the church. The Lord has given you eyes to see and a heart to feel for this specific thing in the life of the church. The way that we feel like it should move forward is take on that thing, make that thing your ministry. And it says it pleases the whole group of people. And the Hellenistic Jews who recognized that Hellenistic widows were being uh, overlooked, they're like, we'll take it. It will become our ministry. We will bless Jesus. We'll bless Jesus' church by serving the people in his church. And we're not going to sit there and go like, well, I'm going to go somewhere else because the widows are being overlooked. It's not that. It's like, actually, I want to step in and bless the church by meeting this need. And then notice what it says. It says that the word of God spread. The, the, the church actually advanced because people didn't choose to go, I noticed an issue in the church, and so I bailed. I noticed an issue in the church, and that became my ministry to serve inside the church. Their preferences, their passions, even their, in this particular case, their frustration and their angst wasn't something that the Lord was angry at. It was actually like, hey, I put that there in you. You notice something that's lacking in the life of the church. Allow that to be a space that you pour into the life of the church. Don't go and find it where somebody else is doing it so you can just take, it, take from it. Actually build something here among you that's actually something that's going to bless the life of the church. And I think there's so much to that. I think it's same, the, the same is true for our passions, for our preferences, even for your frustrations. And for the things that you look at in the church and be like, man, it'd be really nice if the church had X. It's like, great. And that, that, I don't think that's a space where the Lord is going like, yeah, I'm frustrating you so that you'll leave. I think it's like, man, I'm frustrating you, frustrating you so that you'll actually step into your role as someone who noticed a need in the church and now you're going to seek to meet it. And I'm not saying that there's never any reason to leave a church. I recognize that there are tons of reasons to do that. Most of them have nothing to do with preferences, and all of them have everything to do with theology. But I do think that there's a space here where what they're saying is like, man, what's available to you in the midst of your frustration is a space to serve the church, not to walk away from the church. And so for us, it would be like, instead of saying, they don't have a youth ministry, so I'm going to leave, it would be, they don't have a youth ministry, so I'm going to stay. 
I'm going to help poor into this. They don't serve the poor enough in this area, so I'm going to leave. No, they don't serve the poor in this area, so I want to begin a thing over there. They don't do mission trips over in this space. It's like, I'm going to go to a church that does that. Like, no, no, no. Let's begin that here. The church is built up by people noticing discrepancies or noticing flaws or noticing things that are missing and going like, I notice this isn't here. I'd like to step in and actually give my hands and feet because Jesus is the head and I'm just the body. And so I'm not going to leave his church. I'm actually going to function as his hands and feet inside the body. And because it's his church, when we know this, when we believe this and have this in its proper order, our preferences don't become the head and king of the church. He remains that, and our preferences become our ministry. I think this is super important for us to just be reminded of. And more than most things, y'all, I welcome this at this church. If you're like, man, I noticed a need, great, please come talk to me. I will never shoot you down unless it's just a terrible idea. No. Um, I, I, I genuinely, like, I, I want this to happen so much. Like, you have passions, you have preferences, you have things you've noticed needs that I don't because you are you and I am me. My passion is for everybody to pray multiple hours a day. That's what I want. But if the church is built on that, nobody's going to do anything. We're all going to be praying and nobody's going to be like actually serving the poor. I'm just praying for the poor. God, heal the poor. Like, like we, need, we need other people that are like, I think I'm going to go serve the poor. We need Alan who's going to MIFA. We need these things that are happening. We need people who have heart, hearts for uh, adopter, uh, adoption and foster care. and all. The, like, we need people with those things because it's not everybody passion. It's not everybody's preference, but it is yours. And so the church will grow and expand and become the, more the hands and feet and more all of those things as we actually lean into those things, not run to other churches who have those things. And again, this isn't a plea for like, please stay at our church. It's not that, I promise. I love our church. Um, but the point is it's his and the way that the church is built up is by people getting into small tiffs and going, should we abandon one another? It's like, no, no, no. We should, we should look together and work together to actually do something in the life of our city and the life of our church so that we are serving the head who is Christ because it's his church and not ours. And so for us, if you have thoughts, I will say this. I, there's a difference between a good idea and a great idea. And I say this to everybody. A good idea is just an idea that you have. Colton, here's a good idea for the church. Love those. A great idea is a good idea attached to, I also want to help do that thing. Okay? Tons of people have good ideas. They just launch bombs at you. Like, go start this thing. And I'm like, uh, I'm busy. <laughs> like, I got an eight-year-old and a wife and all these different things. But like, if you, a great idea is a good idea that you go, I'd also like to be the person that runs that and takes the lead on that. Great ideas. That's what we want. Okay. Second thing. That's the first thing. It's Jesus's church, not ours. Our preferences matter. They just don't matter as much as what Jesus wants to do with the church. And so everything is about him and for us, but it's about him. Second thing is Jesus builds the church. Jesus builds the church. We do not. This is what he says on this rock. I will build my church. I will build. Jesus is like, I build this thing. You do not build it. I build it. When the church forgets that Jesus builds the church and starts believing that it's up to them as the pastors or the people inside the church, it's such a difficult task to build a church, and not like a building, but like to advance and keep the, the, the church alive and flourishing. It's such a difficult task that what it normally does, when people think it's up to them, what it leads them to do is it leads them ultimately to make decisions out of fear because it's just such a difficult task. And so the way this has happened in the past is like people pander to the largest donors in the church. It's like, I can't, we can't, we can't lose them. Like it's up to us to keep the church afloat and to keep it. And so like, this is what they want. We got to do it. We got to pander to the biggest donors because if we lose their money, then our church will sink. And on that, we build the church, not Jesus. It's what friends of mine 
they're dealing with right now in, in a different state, but uh, they just, the struggle is to do whatever the longest standing member, like it's, um, you know, uh, some type of uh, business or organization, just the longest standing members just doing whatever they want done because they have the most influence. If we don't do what they want, they'll take the people and the church will split and all these different things and we'll have to do this stuff. But in reality, I think when we believe that like we are the church, we are the people who have to build this thing when it leads us to fear, best case scenario, it's one of those two things, just pandering to donors or something like that. Worst case scenario, it's trying to find power and align ourselves with power. This is a church that felt like it was going to lose its ability to thrive and be a church. This is the Catholic church aligning with Nazism back in the 40s, or the 30s, actually. And, like they, and you look at it, it's like, why would you ever do that? Like, why, how, if, like you preach the Bible, like, how could you ever align yourself with this? And, like, for them, it was fear. Like, we might, the church will be, will be snuffed out. The cultural tide is so strong that if we don't align ourselves with the political power of our day, we will lose out and we will no longer exist. And it was just people that just began believing we build the church Jesus might help, but we're really the builders. And this is what it leads to. It's what led other churches to, um, in the South, the Southern Baptist churches, to align with slavery. And be like, slavery's completely fine. It's like, why did you do that? And it's like, well, because they felt like if we don't, then we'll lose our biggest givers. We'll lose our people. We'll lose our membership. And so even though we might disagree with it, we have to compromise. Because we have to keep the church alive. We have to keep the church afloat. It's the same reason that churches began denying the resurrection of Jesus. He's like, man, people don't believe the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in a real resurrection. Nobody's ever seen that. And so we have to change our beliefs on that. Otherwise, we'll lose our people. It's the same reason that people have changed their views on sin lately and in the past because it's like we have to become uh, something that our culture looks at and, and, and isn't so um, polarized by it. So we have to change our views on what sin actually are. We have to lighten some of the things that the scriptures say. We have to change those things because in, the, in, in effect, and the fear is we build the church, not them. It's what led people to change their view on Jesus and uh, of who Jesus is, how to get to God. They're like, oh, you can just get to God through uh, multiple different ways, and then churches exist that are doing these things. And the whole point is, if we don't lack some of these things, if we don't change some of these things, if we don't allow some of these things to switch and to move, then we won't be able to build the church. The church won't survive. And the issue is, like, Jesus doesn't build that church. He, he builds his church, and he builds it his way, and he's the one who's built it. In the evangelical space, that I spend the most time in, the way that this looks the most of people feeling like we have to build the church is it looks like people getting angry and argumentative and debating online and hateful because it's like they feel like the church and Christianity is losing its footing in our nation or in culture or whatever. And so if the culture is going to land blast us, we're going to land blast them. If they're going to call us names, then we're going to call them names. And then all of a sudden, the Christians are fighting the exact same way that the culture is fighting. And y'all, the church just doesn't, I mean, the world just doesn't need another fearful church. Like, it doesn't need people arguing online for Jesus' name. Like, it just doesn't need that. It doesn't need people arguing political agendas versus this person versus this. Like, it just doesn't need that. I can promise you the next generation doesn't need that. They don't want that. This is the reason why people are leaving. They're like, honestly, all they fight about is politics and cultural issues. And I just... I don't want to be a part of any of that. And the world doesn't need a church doing those things. And the great thing is, is like, it was never our job to try and keep the church afloat or to keep the church alive. It was him. He will build it. He will do that thing. And the world just doesn't need an angry church spouting things online, arguing on social media, and saying that, like, I believe in Jesus, and you should too, and ah! And, like, all, it just doesn't need that. 
Jesus builds the church, we do not. And for us, like, if we can believe that, it adds to this space of joy and freedom of going like, I don't have to worry about those things. I don't have to try and keep the church alive. I don't have to try and make sure the church is relevant. I don't have to make sure the church has, uh, is powerful in our culture and people see it as viable. I don't have to worry about that because none of those things actually build the church. Jesus builds the church. The church was built, I mean, when people talk about relevancy and stuff like that, like I have friends and they're well-meaning, but they're like, are you nervous being a pastor in a culture that really finds the church irrelevant? I'm like, not really. The church, or not really, not at all. The church thrives in irrelevancy. The church, Jesus grew the church at the most irrelevant time in history for Christianity. And so you had the secular side of the world and then you had the religious side of the world. Both those sides were aimed against Christianity. Christianity was the most irrelevant thing. That the Romans hated it and the Jewish people hated it. They killed Jesus and they also were there too, killing Jesus. Like It was the most irrelevant time in history for Christianity and that was the space where it grew the most. And so are you worried about being irrelevant? Like, no, it's that relevancy has never made people start, start coming to church. It's always made the church becoming more relevant. It's always made the church lead towards decline. And so it's never been that way. The same with persecution. Aren't you worried about the culture shifting and changing to, and the taxes and all these different things? Are you, are you worried about some of these things? I'm like, not really. Again, not at all. The church, I mean, I don't want to be persecuted. I'm not like, sign me up. I'm not thrilled for that. But it's not this space where I'm sitting there worried about that because the church has always thrived and been built primarily in times of persecution. Read Acts. It is persecution that spread the life of the church. That's why the quote became that like, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's why these emperors didn't want to, they, they were killing Christians and watching these people kill Christians early on. And then one of the emperors still didn't like them, but it's like, don't kill them. Every time we kill them, five more sprout up in their place. Like, stop killing them. And it was like this, they were like, we don't even know how to do this. We don't know how to do this thing. Uh, Frederick Bruner uh, has this wonderful quote that Rainey sent me because I was talking to her about this. She says, it's so, or she says, <laughs> Bruner says this. He says, we will be tempted to distrust this little gospel we bear when we compare it with contemporary powers. But where are all those ancient faiths, philosophies, and forces that once vexed the church? Where are the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Gnostics, and the mystery religions? Where's the Roman army? The church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. I love that. The church is an anvil that wears out many hammers. It won't die because he can't, and he builds it. And so if you look at like all the emperors of Rome, who most of us don't even know their names anymore, but like all of them said at some point, or many of them said at some point, I will stamp out and snuff out Christianity in its time. It's this small little movement in my city, and I'm going to stamp it out in my time. And so Nero, Domitian, Decius, Valerius, Diocletian, they banned the scriptures, they tore down the house churches, they prohibited meetings, they stripped Christians of their legal rights and carried out mass executions to try and scare people from becoming Christians. And then you ask the question, like, where are these rulers? Where is the nation of Rome? Where is the, the, the strength of Rome? Like, it's, it lies in ruins, and now Christians go to visit it. Like, we're the people that actually supply them with money to, for their own city. Like the, the, the city of Rome that was supposed to stamp out the Christians is now something that lies in ruins and new churches are being established every day. Christians are coming to faith every day. Now I will say, Christianity is primarily thriving in spaces where the church isn't trying to make it relevant. They're just doing this. They're just holding up the football and going, y'all, this is a football. They're going, hey, y'all, this is Jesus. This is his church. This is his thing. The churches that are just maintaining this fidelity to Jesus and the gospel and just going like, I, I know that the culture wants me to change my beliefs on it, but I won't. I know the culture wants to change these, the way the, the scriptures are read. I'm just not going to do that. I know the culture wants to, me to be more accepting in some of these. Like I, like, I love all people. I love my enemies and my, my neighbors, but I'm not changing these 
orthodox doctrines and these things that are historical and last. I'm not doing that because every time that, that happens, every time we seek to become more relevant, decline happens and death happens. Not the thing that we're actually trying to do. The church is booming in spaces like Portland and in New York City and, uh, and then primarily over, not in the West, but in the East, where it's like, man, they're under persecution and dealing with irrelevancy, and yet that is the space where it's doing it because they're just following Jesus and going, you have the words of life. Where else could we go? And he is building his church where he wants to build his church because it's his to build and it's, it's what he wants to do. And so for us, I think it's wonderful and to, to be in this space where it's like, y'all, in this political cycle and the, the whole thing that we're about to enter into, which does make me nervous a little bit just because I just hate talking about politics so much, um, but we don't have to fight online for the name of Jesus. Like, we don't have to fight for the, for the relevancy of a church. Like, he's going to build it. We can just love our enemies and love our neighbors and follow Jesus, and then he's going to build his church. That's what he does. And he's done it consistently over time without it ever failing. And the churches that have tried to shift or tried to become like the culture have found themselves, like G.K. Chesterton says, he says, any church or any person that weds itself to the culture of the age, finds itself a widow in the next. Like you just cannot find a space where you're actually marrying yourself to something that won't last, but this is eternal. This is what he builds. All right, that's the second point. Jesus builds the church. We don't. And the third is he builds on one foundation. Jesus builds on one foundation and one foundation alone. He says, on this rock, he, go to the next slide. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, on this rock, I will build my church. He's not saying, I build this on Peter. I recognize that the Roman Catholic Church basically exists because they believe that. Um, but that's not what he's saying. I don't have time to like, go into the nuance of the Greek. But basically, when he says, you, uh, Peter, that's, that's, a, that's a masculine noun because he's talking about a guy. When he says, on this rock, that's a feminine word because he's talking about the declaration Peter just made. So, just masculine and feminine, it's two different things. Okay, and so if you want to talk more about that, we can talk about more about that. But basically, it's just, that's, that's the, he's, he's referencing on this one foundation, on the declaration that Peter has made, I will build my church. Jesus builds his church on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the king, the long-awaited king of joy, the prince of peace, the savior of the world, that he is the son of the living God, that he is God himself. Jesus builds his church on that foundation and that foundation alone. And anytime we shift from this, he won't bless that church, he won't build that church because he cannot build in any other foundation. Uh, Bruner, in his commentary on this passage, says this again. He says, the Christian church is healthy when she is a decisive or as decisive and emphatic as Peter, and she is sick when she wavers on this point. This Christ pointing, what he references to Peter, just pointing to Jesus, this Christ pointing is the gift above all else that builds churches. Disciples and communities who modestly, tirelessly, and faithfully point to Jesus are disciples and communities that Jesus honors by using to build up his church. Christ-centeredness, then, is the key to church building. And the reason he builds on this foundation is, is, is actually really simple, we understand this, like if you believe what Peter said, if you have this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that's how you're born into the church. It's called being, the idea Jesus talks about being born again. When you believe this, you go from being dead in your sin to alive in Christ, and so you become a part of the church. The church isn't a building, it's a people that have the same confession and share a confession, and their confession is Jesus. And so he builds, he establishes the church through that, people who believe those things. And then not only does he establish the church through that and you're now a part of it, but this is also how he grows you and matures you and develops you and, 
lead you into fullness of life and all those things, understanding this idea of Jesus and, and growing deeper and deeper into a relationship with Jesus, that's how growth happens. The best illustration, it's not perfect, but the best analogy or illustration I can think of to, to help you understand that he builds on this foundation in multiple ways is the idea of like planting a plant with a seed. So you have a seed, you plant it in a foundation, the soil, and then it sprouts and it's no longer a seed, it's a plant, it's a little plantling thing. So it's, it's something that's changed. It's been established as a plant, not a seed anymore, established as a plant. But it'd be ridiculous if you were like, all right, let me, I want this thing to grow for real. I'm going to snag it up, and I'm going to take it someplace else to find some real growth. Like, that would be dumb. That doesn't work that way. The way that you actually, the plant will grow the strongest is that it actually needs to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and its roots need to span the way all the way through the soil. It needs to stay in the foundation and find more of the foundation around and grow deeper and deeper into the foundation so that the plant has the strength to actually grow up. And the idea that Jesus is saying is like, I build, I establish the church this way and I build Christians this way. But the only way that I build them is when they grow deeper in a relationship with me, when they learn more about me, when they spend more time with me, when they're around me and get to know me and around me. This is how people are developed. And so the things in your life that you're longing for and looking for, and you're like, well, I came to faith in Jesus and now my eternity is secure, but I really need something else to help me grow in my joy or my peace or whatever. It's like, oh, no, no, nothing else will do it. Jesus says it this way, he's like, he's like the, the idea is just as a branch can do nothing apart from the vine, you can do nothing apart from me. And that's the idea, like the foundation itself is this space where it's like you have to stay here and go back to Jesus consistently. Peter says, as you come to him, as you come to him, the true living stone, you are being built together like living stones. The idea is we need him as the foundation. That's the only way that he grows you. That's the only way that he substantiates this thing and all the stuff that we want. And so what we believe as a church and as, as people is like, if you want to grow, if you want to experience more joy, more fullness of life, there's no, I don't need to give you, here's three ways to help your marriage and not talk about Jesus. No, that's not, that's not going to help your marriage. The thing that's going to help your marriage is Jesus. And so I'm going to preach Jesus. The thing that's going to help your parenting is Jesus. The thing that's going to help you become more humble is Jesus. The thing that's going to make you more forgiving is Jesus. The thing that's going to make you want to deal with difficult people in a political season is Jesus. He is the person that actually is the foundation that he will build what he wants to build on him and, and he builds those things in you. And so all the things that we long for and we're hoping to experience, to try and find those things elsewhere is just impossible because they don't exist anywhere except in the person of Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. And this is the idea of what Jesus is leaning into too. Like I, there's one foundation where everything is established and everything is built. And the world, what it's looking for and longing for and what it's chasing down in other spaces, like it's just never going to find it out there. And it's only found in one foundation. And so for us as a church, we're going to continue to build the church and to preach Jesus. And we're going to sing about Jesus. And we're going to take communion to remind us of Jesus. We're going to call you to worship because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And the whole thing, we're going to give because we're not giving to Colton or, this, or C3. We're giving to Jesus and the work of the ministry that Jesus wants to do through us. Like, 
Everything, everything, everything is always only about him and for him, and so that's what it's going to be because there's nothing else that I could point you to that would actually lead you to anything you're longing for except to point you consistently over and over and over back to him. And that's what the world needs. That's what we need, and it's consistent. So that's the church. It's Jesus' church, not ours. It's for us. It's just not about us. It's hard. We get that mixed up sometimes, but it's for us, not about us. He builds it. Jesus builds it, not us. We don't have to help him. We just need to continue to point to him because he only builds on that foundation alone. It's the foundation of him. He builds on that foundation. So I want to close a little bit differently by just continuing to kind of go through this passage. But Rainey talked about this and that. This would be a good idea, and I just loved it, so I'm just stealing it from her. But we're married, so it's basically we're one flesh, so that's fine. <laughs> but Peter makes this confession um, of, like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this. He goes... Uh, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my, fa- my Father in heaven revealed this to you. You didn't come to this knowledge by human debate. You didn't come to this knowledge by human intellect. This didn't happen based on anything that you have in and of yourself. This was divine revelation that was given to you. And so he just reveals that the way that people come to faith is not by winning a debate or losing a debate. You're never going to transfer anybody's eternal salvation or their heart. You're going to change their heart by debating them into Christianity. One pastor said that if you can ever debate anybody into Christianity, somebody else can debate them out of it. You need divine revelation, something to sink deep. You need the Lord to do something, to open something for you. And so I know that for you and for me, we have people in our lives that are like, man, I want this person to come to faith. And it, become, it can be difficult to think that like, They've, they've walked through so much pain or they're so angry at the church or they're so angry at God or they're just in a difficult spot. There's just no way they're ever going to believe and we can think that like, it would take something big for them, like the miracle or a healing. And if they were healed, then maybe they believe or something like that. But Jesus testifies like it's not miracles that led Peter to this. It's not anything that's happened. It's not any of those things that led Peter to go like, oh, now I believe. It's like the Father just revealed that thing to you. And so the thing that we need to do if we have people in our lives that we long to be a part of the church and come to, and not this church, but like come to faith in Jesus and have this confession, the thing that we need to do the most is not necessarily talk to them, debate them, you know, all those different things. Although it's great to talk, it's fun to have debates, not good to argue. But um, the thing that we need to do the most is just pray that the Father would just reveal this to them and just open their hearts to receive. And like, Lord, would you just reveal to them by divine revelation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. My life was changed dramatically. I went from a partying, happy pagan on January, what is it, January 15th, 2004, to the next day, a thoroughly converted Christian on the very next day. And like the only thing that I can think of is like my mom and stepdad were praying for me and asking the Lord to do this. Stephanie Burton was praying like in her prayer journals, like we didn't even know each other. She's praying for some pagan in Georgia. And like, this whole, just in the journal and all these different things. And like, I owe my, I mean, like, I owe my life to, to, to these people who just chose to pray for people. They barely even knew. My parents obviously knew what I was walking through, but like, just pray for me. The Lord would just do this. Flesh and blood won't do it. Like they weren't even there for it. And in one night I went from just partying pagan to thoroughly converted and wanting nothing, wanting nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with Jesus. And it's because people were just praying, Lord, would you just reveal to him that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I, I again, 
Everything good in my life begins that day moving forward. Everything now I can point to and go, I love this. I'm so glad this is a part of my life. Only those things exist only because Jesus actually revealed that stuff to me. And so my wife exists and I'm married because of this and I'm probably alive because he saved me, not just eternally, but also for real. Uh, My son, all the different things. This, what I get to do right now. It's because someone prayed for me and the Lord did this thing. And so what I want to do is just ask, uh, just show of hands, if you have anybody in your life that you're like, man, I want them to come to faith. I want them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a safe place. We're at church. We're all here together. Anybody have anybody? I do. Okay, great. That's awesome. Um, so as good as, as you are and I am at, at public speaking and talking, um, that's not going to do it. Um, and so I want us to just spend the next 60 seconds in silence and just praying for them. And just pray this, like, reveal to them, Father, Father, reveal to them that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can go back to the, the text, but just take 60 seconds in silence, and I'll close this in prayer. But I just want us to end this way. This is how he establishes people and makes them a part of the church. And then it's also the space that he actually, the things that they're longing for and can't seem to find, this is what he wants to do for them. And so I just want to pray for them. The Father reveals these things to them. And so 60 seconds in silence. If you raised your hand, please pray um, for those people, and then I'll close this in prayer, and we'll worship together. Lord, would you reveal to Sam that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, would you reveal that to Jen, would you reveal it to Matt, Father, they're desperate, I know they're tired of searching, trying every single thing they could possibly, possibly try, hurting themselves to try and find peace. And so, Father, would you reveal to them that you are the long-awaited king that came to bring peace came to bring fullness, that came to bring these things that they long for, that you are him, and you are for them and not against them, that you chase them down with goodness and mercy and not wrath and retribution. And Father, for the people and the hearts and minds of, of those in our church, Father, would you do the same thing? Not so that Christ Community Church grows, uh, but so that 
a father like you has more sons and daughters coming into your kingdom. This love that you have for them is something that they experience. And so that they're set free from wondering, when will I finally find what I'm longing for? That they will find it wrapped up in you. So Father, I pray that you would do that for us. Bless our church, Father. Build this thing the way that you seek to build it. Help us to remember that this is yours and not ours. It's such a gift to us to have these people and to have what we have. Lord, I pray that we just remember that it's yours. And these things that we want to see happen, Lord, that it's space that we can be your hands and feet. Would you help us to that? And Lord, would you just remind us again, we don't ever need to graduate beyond Jesus. We don't ever need more special knowledge. We just need to go back to the beginning and go back to the space where we went from dead in our sin to alive in Christ and go back to him again for what we're longing for. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to take communion. And um, every week we do this with a liturgy, which I love and it's beautiful. And liturgy is just a, we'll talk about why we do liturgy too. It's just a space where we just have this time of, of just saying something together, we're unified together. Um, and just praying old prayers or singing old songs together uh, so that we're one in body and mind. Uh, and so Jesus, to show, it's like I genuinely love you people, and there's no other way that I can love you more than to lay down my life for you, to show that he gave his body and he spilled his blood. And in doing that, he purchased the church, this group of people that are now his, and he calls them his bride, and he says that he loves the bride, he loves the church. He wants to pour out his gifts and blessings and the riches in, in the heavenlies. He wants to pour those things out into the life of the church. Not the building, but the people. And the only reason he does that is because he gave his body and he gave his blood. And so we have this time every week, and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks, of like why we do this thing. Why is it so important for us to remember? One of the biggest ones is we just forget. And we think that our salvation, we think God's love for us is based on how well we did. It's based on some merit that we earned. And we need to be reminded. It's like, no, he loves us. Even while we were sinners, he died for us. And so... This bread represents Jesus' body. Say the words in bold and underlined. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. And this juice represents his blood, the blood of the covenant. And I love this song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're going to take communion. Just take some time in your seats. Um, you can pray for your people again, but then we'll have some people um, serving communion to you. You can come up and take to your right or to your left when you're ready.